A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Among Henry VIII's queens, there were several who were deeply involved in the patronage of artists, scholars and writers, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn among them. But this is especially true for Henry VIII's last queen, Catherine Parr, who was also a scholar and a writer in her own right. She was one of the first English women to publish in print works under her own name. Today's guest, Dr. Micheline White, argues that Catherine Parr invented a new role as both queen and author, and that some of her interventions show her translating politically sensitive texts, producing key wartime propaganda, and collaborating with Henry and Thomas Cranmer to do that, even before she printed her two famous books, Prayers and Meditations in 1545 and Lamentations of a Sinner in 1547. Dr. White also suggests that her discoveries can shed new light on Catherine Parr's influence on Princess Elizabeth, later Elizabeth I, and therefore enhance our understanding of Catherine Parr's role in the English Reformation and its ongoing legacy. Dr. Micheline White is Associate Professor in the College of Humanities and Department of English at Carleton University. She's particularly interested in women's writing and Reformation history, and in the past few years, her articles on Catherine Parr have revealed some very important findings about Henry's last queen, as we shall see. Dr. White, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. So we're going to be talking about Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's last queen. And over the last few years, you have made several significant discoveries that are changing the way that we understand Catherine Parr's role and the way that she invented, in fact, a new role, you argue, as a queen and an author. We're going to look at each of these discoveries in some detail. But could you start by giving us an overview of the way that Henry VIII's wife carved out this space for herself? Sure. Well, I've been working on part, as you said, for about 10 years now. And the thing that has most captivated me in learning about her is the degree to which her role as queen and author are sort of inseparable. So queens were really busy, as you know. They did lots of things. Their primary job was to have an heir. They 
participated in diplomatic negotiations, they arranged marriages, they dispensed patronage to artists and musicians and authors. They were supposed to display piety and assist the king. And certainly queens ideally were also educated, highly educated and learned. So there's lots of evidence of other queens like Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon. We know read lots of books, owned books, patronized books. People gave books to them. But what's so unique about Parr is just that she was also an author and that her works, and I've become increasingly convinced over time, is that her works are actually furthering the agenda of the crown. So all of them, it's not like she's writing books off in a corner somewhere or that she's writing religious books that are more sort of neutral or something, that her works really have to be understood in terms of the agenda of the crown at the time. And it's clear that her publications were produced in consultation with Henry and Thomas Cranmer, which I find very fascinating. And so what it means is that if we're going to study Parr, On the one hand, we need, when we're reading her works, to look really closely at what Henry's doing and what other members of the Privy Council are doing, which has not been sort of a dominant theme in some of Parr scholarship in the 70s or 80s, for example. At the same time, it means to me anyway that historians who are looking at the last year of Henry's reign need to look more closely at Parr and to recognize that she was part of the machinery of the crown and that she was doing important things to advance the crown's agenda. And it's so interesting when you look at how her contemporaries viewed her. I mean, so the evidence for this is not just in the text themselves, but if you look at how people talk about Parr over the course of her life, you can see a real shift When she first marries Parr, there are lots of letters from different ambassadors, and they describe her very traditionally as serene. Somebody says she's beautiful, she's wise, she's pious. But then over time, you see people need to grapple with this fact that she's an author and that Henry is promoting her and enabling her and wanting her to be working for him. And so you see them coming up with new terminology. So people will praise her for her pious studies, right? So praising her for being a scholar or for her studious diligence. Someone else refers to her as a most learned queen. And then some of the most striking examples come from Nicholas Udall, who writes a series of dedications to her that preface the translation of Erasmus's paraphrases. And he refers three times at least to the fact that she writes pious meditations. And in another place, he even says that she is like a captain who inspires men by setting forth the pen. So he then is even praising her and suggesting that one of her roles as a queen is to be an author who inspires men also to be authors, which is sort of amazing. It certainly is. So listeners might well know that she publishes prayers or meditations in 1545 and Lamentations of the Sinner in 1547. And I just want to pick up on one thing you just said there, which is this idea that her writing is not a side hustle, that it is actually part of the agenda of the court. And the thing that's often said about Lamentations is she only publishes this when Henry has died because it represents a religious viewpoint that he does not espouse. What do you make of that? Oh, yes, absolutely. And The thing that I find the most fascinating about that, in fact, I'm writing about this right now, is that, yeah, she refers to Henry in the text as being still alive. 
Of course, it's not published until after he's died, and it quite clearly aligns itself with the agenda of the new Edwardian course, right? So Parliament is meeting in November. Her text comes out the day after Parliament meets. It's sponsored by Cecil, who's an MP, and has just started working for Edward Seymour. So it shows us that she was already sort of more reformed than Henry was at the end of her life, but very wisely did not publish the text. I mean, goes against everything that he had asserted in the King's book. But I think what it does is it falsely suggests that Henry approved of this new viewpoint, right? Because she publishes this book saying, I'm married to Henry and here are my beliefs. And it suggests that Henry is on board. And so it's trying to paper over, I think, the fact that she's now working for a very different crown and it provides a kind of continuity, which is duplicitous, but very strategic. And exactly what had happened, in fact, with Henry VIII's will and the idea that he's asked for a regency council. But then when Somerset becomes the first among equals in the council, that is also entirely in line with Henry VIII's will, even though it's the complete opposite of what he says. Now, I'm skipping ahead, so let's go back, because your work points to the fact that actually before these books, before Prayers or Meditations, before Lamentations of a Sinner, back in 1544, at a time when Henry and his advisors were preoccupied by war, Catherine Parr translated a book of Latin prayers by John Fisher. And you note that these include prayers by George Witzel and by Erasmus that she adapted. So first of all, can I ask you, how do we know that Parr translated it? Because her name's not on the cover. And can you talk us through the novelty of a woman doing this? So it's a great question. How do we know this is by par? In fact, if you look in the Ebo today, you know, in the short title catalog, it is not listed under her name. So if you were just starting to work on par and you turn to the short title catalog, you would not find the Psalms or prayers. So there are four or five pieces of evidence that strongly indicate that Parr was the author. It's interesting to note that actually in 1721, John Stripe claimed that she had translated the Psalms or Prayers, but then that attribution was dropped later, and so it completely vanishes from view for quite a while. But then in 1999, Susan James, who wrote an excellent biography of Parr, made a really strong case that she was the translator of the Psalms of Prayers. And so I'll just outline her evidence. I mean, other people have been building, adding little pieces to the puzzle, but the main case that she points out is that there are three references, as I mentioned, in a later book that Parr had sponsored, dedications by Nicholas Udall praising Parr. One of those dedications is written in 1545, and the other two are written in 1548 when the book comes out. In three of the five dedications, he specifically praises her for godly psalms and meditations of your own penning and setting forth. So in three different places, he refers to psalms and then also meditations. So Parr's second book is actually called Prayers and Meditations. So it seems pretty clear that here, Udall is referring to those two books. So psalms or prayers and prayers or meditations. In another place in Udall, and this is something that I've pointed out, this is the passage where he says she's like a captain inspiring other men to write by setting pen to book. 
But that whole metaphor of the captain going to war seems to me anyway to be a reference to her translation of Erasmus's prayer for men to say going into battle. The other piece of evidence is that two of the prayers in this book from 1544, so the prayer for the king and the prayer for men to say going into battle, appear in Parr's second book, that it comes out just a year later. The other piece of evidence is Parr's account books. And this is something that Susan James also pointed out, is that there's a book bill from Thomas Bertlett that makes it very clear that Parr paid for 14 fancy copies of what he calls psalm prayers. And he says they were gorgeously bound and gilt on the leather. So two of them are given to the clerk of Parr's closet. And I assume those would have been for her personal use. And we can get to that later because I think I know what both of those are. The other 12 are given to her almoner. And it seems certain that they would have been then given out as gifts. So I think those are all the pieces of evidence. And I think the consensus now is pretty, I don't think anyone thinks that Parr did not translate the Psalms or prayers. So of those two prayers in particular, the one for men going into battle and the prayers for the king, I'd like to particularly think about her process. And the prayer for the king you have drawn attention to because there are ways in which it varies from her source material. So can you talk through those variations, which are so important when you're looking at translations, and what kind of monarchical ideals it espouses through those changes? Yeah, as you pointed out, whenever you're looking at translations, they're so interesting because you can see what was changed. And actually, for many years... It was assumed that Parr had written these. So, and then once I realized they were translations, I remember telling someone once and they said, oh, that's disappointing that she didn't write it. But actually at the end of the day, I found it more interesting because the sources are all a little bit problematic and she has to do some work to make them suited for what Henry wants or what Cranmer wants. And so we actually can see her making these interesting changes. So you asked me to describe some of them. So, yeah, in the prayer for the king, I mean, of course, they're very subtle, right? You're just looking at sort of nuances, but there are enough of them and they build up to enable us to see her doing something interesting. So, for example, in one place, the Latin refers to Christ as the monarch of monarchs. And then we notice in her translation, she doesn't go for that at all. She goes for the only ruler of princes. So Christ is the only ruler of princes. And I think we can argue that's a subtle nod towards the royal supremacy, right? Henry was very keen, you know, his title included the fact that he was the second under Christ and he rejects papal authority over the prince. In another place, which comes from Psalm 2, there's a verse that's taken out of Psalm 2, which is an unusual, it was often assumed to refer to kings, where they're asking the Holy Spirit to move Henry in the right direction. But in the Latin, Henry's sort of passive and he's being moved, whereas Parr makes it more active and says, you know, send the Holy Spirit so that Henry will incline to thy will and walk in thy way. And that's not in the original at all. So it's emphasizing Henry's then desire to walk in God's way. 
And then Janelle Mueller actually also pointed this out, that at the very end of the poem, the speaker is asking God to help Henry sort of in the war, to be manly and scary and dreadful (laughs) and to vanquish his enemies. And par just adds a lot of doublets. So where the Latin has one word, par will double it. There's also a place where in the Latin it asks God to give Henry blessings of thy sweetness. And Parr completely takes that out. And I think it's because during a war, you don't want a king who's sweet. You want a king who's ferocious, right? So she just completely gets rid of that and asks for health and wealth and for him to be dreadful, more dreadful. So Parr is creating an image of the king, right? Just like there were visual images of Henry in the title page of the Great Bible or paintings or tapestries. And these were very tightly controlled because certain values want to be communicated. Another value that Parr puts in actually is in one place, the original asks for Henry to obey God. And then in Parr's translation, she also adds fear and obey. And that might not seem like such a big deal until we look at Thomas Cranmer at the same time was writing some new petitions about Henry for the litany. And it echoes exactly what Cranmer is saying. Cranmer emphasizes fear in three places. So it's just so fascinating to see Parr and Cranmer deliberately using the very same words. So Henry is obedient to God's will, but he fears God. He's active, he's manly, and he's going to triumph over his enemies. It's so interesting. And I think you're completely right. And it does align with how Henry sees the world, this only ruler of princes, that he is not under any authority but God's, and also that God ought to be a figure of awe. That's where fear comes in. And similarly, I think Henry feels that he ought to be a figure of awe for his subjects as well. So you suggest this indicates an intellectual collaboration between the king and the queen. Is this what you're getting at? Can you explain a bit further? Yes. I mean, I think when we're looking at the Psalms or prayers and every change that Parr makes along the way, because she makes some really interesting changes also to the prayer that was by Erasmus. And I think it's important to emphasize that those would have been done in consultation with and in collaboration with Henry. Right. I don't think it's possible for Parr to say on her own. I'm going to translate a prayer about Henry and I'm going to make changes. It's interesting because it enables us to see her discussing these things with Henry. She knows what Cranmer's doing. I mean, it's also interesting that in Henry's own personal Psalter, which is in the British Library, it's quite well known. It has these beautiful illuminations of Henry as David fighting Goliath and in his bedroom reading. So this is his personal Psalter. He made an annotation right beside that same passage from Psalm 20 and from Psalm 2. Of course, this is all hypothesis because we don't have any evidence, but it seems pretty clear to me that she knows what Henry thinks about those passages. Either they've discussed them or she's seen his annotations. And it seems to me that she's working really closely with them, which again is interesting because so much of the early scholarship on Parr sort of acknowledged that she was a queen. And these scholars did fascinating things, but looked at her more in terms of genre as though she was writing far, far away from Henry. But once we start noticing these details that connect her text with Henry's text, with Cranmer's text, we have a way of imagining the space that she was writing was not an isolated space, sort of away from the court. It was at the center of the court. And it very much 
is confirmed by the programme of portraiture that she's commissioning of herself, which, again, Susan James has shown is upholding her majesty, that we can identify that she's wearing that brooch with the crown on all the time. And so there's a sense of putting majesty and sovereignty at the centre of the activities and putting Christ and their faith at the heart of that. Although I'd like to point out the very earthly message you mentioned earlier as well, the health and wealth, things that Henry really needs in the 1540s, <laughs> they're present there as well. Who's the prayer intended for? Is it fair to say that Parr is acting as a wartime propagandist for Henry? I mean, who's going to be reading it? Yes, absolutely. I think she's a wartime propagandist. And this book was very popular. So it was printed by Thomas Bertlett. First, there's a printing on the 25th of April, which is also a rogation day when they would have been saying prayers for the war and for the king. And then it's printed less than a month later, on the 27th of May, which is actually right after the other rogation days that come before the Ascension. And so that would have been for a wide audience, I think. And there are lots of copies. And then it was reprinted in 1545, 46, 47, 48. And I think the idea is that people at court would be reading it, but that also Henry's subjects at large. And I think there's evidence for the idea that it would be widely distributed and that Henry's subjects could use it is that if we look at a lot of sermons from the time period, like Thomas Beacon, for example, is writing about war. And one of the things he emphasizes is that the people need to be praying for Henry. Lots of people writing to Henry about the war will emphasize that they're all praying for him every day. So I think it's also part of just the understanding of war is that the people need to be praying for Henry every day and that people take this seriously, that when they're talking to Henry, they want him to know that they've been praying for him, right? So I think that lends evidence or weight to the argument that Henry and Parr would have understood that they wanted this book to be distributed as widely as possible because the more people who are praying for Henry, the better it's going to be for him. And one other thought I've just had about the relationship between Henry and Catherine when it comes to faith is that one thing we do know about Henry and Catherine is they talk about these things because it's precisely the fact that they discuss religion, which has almost got her on the hook in 1546, because what she's saying about it seems to be contentious enough that there's an attempt to arrest her. So we do have evidence very much that this is going on, which agrees with what you're saying. Yeah. And just the fact that the Psalms or prayers were written by John Fisher, Henry loathed him. So there must have been some extensive discussions about, I think I've described this as political calculus somewhere else, right? So there have to have been discussions about the dangers, potential downside of reprinting a work by John Fisher Obviously, they take his name off of it, and it's not identified with John Fisher again until 1568. But clearly, they decided that it had such value that it would be worth having Parr translated, which must have taken a long time. It's a long book. So again, that just points, I think, to discussion. There must have been discussion about that. It couldn't have just been Parr on her own decided to translate a book by John Fisher. Now, this prayer for the king, has an enormous legacy, doesn't it? Tell us about it. Well, I mean, if we just want to jump right ahead to today, it's still used to pray for the monarch. 
I did hear it once being said for the queen when she was still alive in the tower. So it was said in a couple of places. And I'm assuming it's still used now to pray for Charles. So it would have gone back to its original title of prayer for the king. So Parr translates this in 1544. Then it appears in her second book in 1545. So it's reprinted frequently. Under Edward, it still stays in print. They just change Henry to Edward. Under Edward, it also appears in the estate private prayer book, the Primer, that's published in 1553, which is basically telling people to use the Book of Common Prayer at home also. So it's a way of getting rid of Catholic books of ours and taking the the Book of Common Prayer and encouraging people to use it at home. But the thing that's remarkable is that they include this prayer for the king. So it's not being said in a liturgical space, but it's being added to a liturgical text that's being adapted for a private space. And the tricky thing there too, is we know that a lot of noble households had chapels in the homes. And so it's possible that in that context, the prayer would even have been used liturgically under Edward. Then obviously under Mary, It's not used liturgically, I assume. But the Sandra Prayers continues to be printed in the Prayers and Meditations under Mary. And Mary's name is inserted. And in some editions, Philip and Mary are inserted. But then what's really interesting is when Elizabeth comes to power. Because one of the first things that we know that she did is she got some legal advice and was told that although she couldn't use the Book of Common Prayer, or though people couldn't use the Book of Common Prayer yet until there was a new act of uniformity, in the Chapel Royal, the Henrician litany was still technically legal because Mary's legislation went back to the text that had been legal under Henry. And so there's evidence that Elizabeth started using the litany in her Chapel Royal in English before anyone else was supposed to. And then she authorized a version that could be used voluntarily by parishes before the Book of Common Prayer came out. And what's amazing is that Parr's prayer for the king has been inserted. So it would have been used in Elizabeth's chapel royal in advance of the law, right? She's sort of flexing her liturgical muscles there and saying, I can do what I want in my chapel royal. Yeah. And then when the Book of Common Prayer comes out in 1559, it's in the litany. After the Civil War, when the Book of Common Prayer is reinstated in 1662, it is actually given more prominence because it's moved to both morning and evening prayer. In the United States, it is adapted as a prayer for the president for a long time. And yeah, it's still used today. So it's quite fascinating that it was produced by Parr. I mean, the original text comes from Georg Witzel and somebody edited it down to the version that was published in Latin in England. And that may also have been Parr, actually. But then Parr is clearly the one who translated it into English. And then Elizabeth obviously decided... She wanted her people to pray for her and that she was going to choose a prayer that had been about her father, but written, produced by her stepmother, which is just, I think, totally fascinating. It certainly is. And it's of a piece, isn't it, with Pa's influence on Elizabeth more generally. What should we make of that relationship? I mean, I agree with the many scholars who have already said that Parr had a huge influence on Elizabeth. I mean, we know that Parr was very solicitous for her. I mean, Susan James has emphasized the way in which she took care of Elizabeth. She sent people to visit her. She sent her gifts. It would appear that Elizabeth stayed with her after Henry left for the war. 
It's clear from the gift books that Elizabeth gave to Parr and Henry that Parr was a stepmother to her, that she wanted Parr to sort of help rehabilitate her relationship with her father. And I think the fact that she includes Parr's prayer in the Book of Common Prayer for her just speaks to that sort of very formative influence. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So this book, Psalms or Prayers, you mentioned earlier that there were 14 deluxe copies of the work that are sent to her clerk and to her almoner, and several of them still survive. Can you describe them? Give us a sense what they look like. They're absolutely beautiful, as you can imagine. They're deluxe gift copies. So there are three gift copies from 1544. So I'm assuming those are part of the 14 that are mentioned in the book bill. Then there are also two copies, extant gift copies from 1545. They're the smaller, the ones from 154 are octavo and the ones from 1545 are sexto decimo, so smaller. They're printed on vellum, so you can feel the texture of the vellum. They've been hand illuminated. So the title pages are gorgeous. The ones from 1544, the Octavo ones, there's quite a large printer's compartment on the title page. It's architectural and it was on all of Bertlett's books. And it has been painted gold, pink, there's red, there's green. It's really eye-catching. There's some bright blue where the date is. And I think it just communicates the splendor of Henry's court. Then on the verso of the title page is a hand-drawn and hand-illuminated coat of arms. So it's Henry's coat of arms. And this is the thing that initially intrigued me so much because I thought, well, why isn't it Parr's coat of arms, right? 
why is it Henry's? And what does that mean? And what I think it means, it shows us that this is a crown publication. This is being issued by the crown, which incorporates both Henry and Parr. And it's beautiful. Like there's a verdigris backdrop and there's an imperial crown. There's some tassels and there's gold. And then on the first page, the first letter of the first psalm is what we call a drop cap. So it's an embellished letter and it has been overpainted with gold and with a Tudor rose. And then throughout the rest of the book, there are 17 psalms in total. And then the prayer for the king and prayer for going to battle. And the opening initial in each of those has a blue or red background, just like in books of hours. I think the rest of it invokes elite books of hours. So there's a red or blue rectangle behind the first letter. And the first letter has been also overpainted with gray or silver or gold paint. So I would certainly have liked to have received one. <laughs> Absolutely. Do we have any idea who these were being given to? Unfortunately, of the five, there are two that pass through Henry's hands. But the other ones, it's unclear. So hopefully this is something that people can work on. One of the copies just doesn't have any annotations in it at all from 1545. The other one does have some handwriting. It's in the rare book room at the University of Illinois. There are some signatures that people have been guessing at. I just haven't had time. Maybe someone else will sort of pursue that a little bit further. Didn't jump out to me immediately as any of the handwriting belonging to anyone in the immediate court. So the signatures could have been later. But I think, you know, just looking at the content, I think that we can hypothesize about who these books were given to. And I think they just would have been other high-ranking courtiers. They were all going to the war, most of the members of Henry's Privy Chamber and Privy Council. So half of them were staying with the Privy Council, half of them were going with Henry, half of them were staying at home. But I think that they would have been given out to people who were involved in the war effort, which would have been many of the people at court. So even though we don't know the individuals, I think that we can imagine what the function of the gift would have been. At least one edition was inscribed by Henry VIII. Let's talk first about the copy that's now in a private collection. What does he write and what do you make of it? Yeah, so this is an inscription where he says, remember this writer when you do pray, for he is yours, none can say nay. And this copy is bound with a copy of the litany that we know belonged to Catherine Parr. So it makes sense because there's an inscription to Parr by Mary Tudor in it. And this inscription is obviously quite affectionate, right? For he is yours. And so it seems like the logical person that he would be inscribing this to would be Parr. So I hypothesize, and other people have said the same thing, that this must have been Parr's copy. So he's inscribing it. I'm so struck by the fact that it's reusing the couplet that Anne Boleyn writes, possibly to Henry, possibly to somebody else. Remember me when you do pray that hope doth lead from day to day. Yeah, so this is very common, right? So lots of people inscribe in other people's books, remember me when you do pray. But what's so interesting about this is that although it's very common, in this book, it has a new kind of resonance, right? Because this is a book that you're supposed to use to pray for Henry's war effort more generally, right? So there's Psalms of repentance, Psalms asking God for wisdom, Psalms asking God to destroy the speaker's enemies. So obviously Henry's enemies in 1544. And then this prayer for the king, right? So it's a very typical inscription, but it has this new timely meaning in this particular book. 
And then the second part of the inscription for he is yours, none can say nay, it has been described by other scholars as charming. And I think that's right. But there's also some palpable tension between, you know, he's saying you, my lover, I am yours, right? You have control over me. I'm the lover and you're the beloved and I belong to you. So you should pray for me because I belong to you. In reality, of course, Parr sort of belonged to Henry. And we know, as you pointed out, in 1546, she was in trouble precisely because she was seen as being a disobedient subject, right? And not displaying sufficient humility and sort of obedience to Henry's will. So it's just sort of interesting here that he's claiming that he belongs to Parr, that Parr is his owner. The other thing I think is interesting, though, is that he's also directing her to pray for him, but he's also, I think, thanking her. I mean, one of the things that I argue about these inscriptions is that this is a gift from Parr. He signs it beneath his coat of arms. So he's showcasing like the king was here, right? The king values this book. The king read this book and now the king's going to inscribe it. So he's sort of acknowledging the work that she's done for him. He's maybe even thanking her a little bit, but then he's also directing her to pray for him which again is very common. But what's interesting is that in Parr's own correspondence with Henry when he's away at the war, on at least three occasions, she informs him that she has been praying for him on her hands and knees daily. So it's so interesting to read this inscription in light of her correspondence then. She clearly understood that praying for Henry was an important duty. And again, to make another parallel to Anne Boleyn, I'm struck by this idea that Henry says to Anne in the same way as he says to Catherine, I am yours. And yet, clearly, it's a power game here that he loves to assert that he is the lover, as in the game of courtly love, and they are the beloved. But in actual fact, the cards are all in Henry's hands as the death and potential death of these two women shows. I kind of think when I read that inscription, I think what it should say is, you are mine, right? Not I am yours. You are mine. Yes, it's a bit creepy because it doesn't actually recognize what really is going on. It's implying something else. And, you know, this declaration that I am yours underneath his coat of arms. (laughs) Yes, it's duplicitous. Potentially. Maybe we're reading too much into it because we know he was a wife killer. You argue that another copy in the Wormsley Library also has markings, and you think that there is good reason to believe these were also made by Henry. Can you explain why you think so? Yes. So what I found in the Wormsley Library copy were 14 annotations. Eight of them are these little hands, which some of your listeners may know were referred to as manicules. So early modern readers often drew these in their books. So they actually drew a little hand pointing to something that they thought was important. Five of them are a different marking, which it's hard to know exactly what to call them. James Carley, who's a Henry scholar, has called them tadpoles in the past. They're sort of three dots and then a squiggle. Again, a very common marking. Other people draw these too. In conversation with James Carley, he actually suggested, and we came to the conclusion that maybe we would call them trefoils instead. So Henry did not sign this book and it doesn't have any of his distinctive handwriting. But my first impulse on seeing them was that they looked exactly like Henry's markings because actually the same week that I saw the Wormsley Library book, I'd been looking at Henry's 
Psalter in the British Library and so had been staring at his annotations really in an attempt to think about the prayer for the king and what he had marked in his Psalter. So, but I had to develop a method, right? So I would say there are four things about these manicules in particular that convinced me that they were Henry's. So the shape is identical. Henry's manicules are actually very distinctive. So he has a pointed index finger and then you see the, the phalanx of three fingers. So no thumb, just an index finger and then three fingers. And if you Google 16th century manicules, if any of your listeners want to do that, you'll find web pages with hundreds of examples. And they're all so different, right? So some are really big, some are really small, some have thumbs, some don't have thumbs. So this, just the shape of the hand is identical to Henry's. The most distinctive thing I think is that Henry always drew a cuff where the wrist is. A lot of people drew a very unique kind of cuff. And so Henry's cuff always has two lines going across the wrist, bending towards the left and going up in a hook. And that's whether the manicules are on the right or the left. Now, unfortunately, the Wormsley copy was cropped at some point in the 19th century. So some of the cuffs have been cropped. But in many of the cases, you can clearly see the shape is the same. And I've looked at hundreds of manicules <laughs> And the ones in the Wormsley book, every single cuff is exactly like Henry. So for me, that was the clinching factor, but also just the way they're angled on the page. So all of Henry's manicules, when they're in the right-hand margin, they point down at about 30 degrees. And it's quite consistent. So I measured angles in a lot of manicules in the British Library that we know are Henry's. And then the Wormsley ones are at the same angle. And that's quite distinctive. A lot of people, they're sort of right directly horizontally, or sometimes people have them in the right margin, they point up. But Henry's always point down in the right margin. And then the ones on the left-hand side of the page in the Wormsley volume and in the British Library, they always point up at about 40 degrees. And then the size is comparable. So again, trying to figure out a method to determine whether they were Henry's, Henry drew manicules in various different sizes, actually. So if you look in the British Library, some are bigger, some are smaller, depending on the size of the book. But for each one in the Wormsley volume, I was able to find a match. So, you know, the sizes are comparable. But it was really the cuff. <laughs> and in your article looking at this, you compare these pictures side by side. And I was entirely convinced after I looked at them without having done this detailed consideration as you have. But it certainly does seem very much the case. So what does this reveal when we can see what Henry's little manicures are pointing out? What does it tell us? So this is super interesting. You know, what was Henry thinking? So I think these were done in two different reading sessions because some of them are in pencil and then two of them are in ink. You know, he may have read this book on more than one occasion, but it does provide a little snapshot into what were passages that jumped out at him. And when I was thinking about this, when I was trying to interpret, like, why should we care about these markings? I looked both at what he did annotate and also what he didn't annotate. And my conclusion is that the annotations in the Wormsley volume do suggest a kind of anxiety. They're both despairing. So some of them are quite despairing or anxious. They reveal anxiety about his sinfulness, about his ignorance, He's worried that God is punishing him. But there is also a kind of hopefulness. So some of them, I mean, in all of these, he's asking God to help him. So he's both articulating his anxieties about the state of his soul, but he's also asking God to forgive him and to heal him. So they're not completely bleak, but they're clearly clustered around two main issues. 
Which is interesting because, I mean, like I said, there's 17 Psalms. It's a 180-page book. But his annotations really focus on two issues. So the first one is physical suffering, which doesn't surprise us because we know that he was very sick at the end of his life and he had an ulcerating leg that couldn't be healed and that it, you know, he was obese and he had a lot of difficulty. And so one of them, for example, says, take away thy plagues from me, for thy punishment hath made me both feeble and faint. And in another place, he says, turn away thy anger from me, that I may know thou art more merciful to me than my sins deserve. And a few lines later, that passage talks about how my strength is not stony. I'm not made out of brass. So, I mean, we know from other evidence that Henry refused to acknowledge his illness in a diplomatic setting. So Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, talks about in this one place, which apparently is in code, that he has the worst legs in the world, but that no one dare tell him. Everyone else is worried about Henry's health, but no one wants to talk to him about it. So I find it so fascinating that here in this book, produced by his wife, he is grappling with this, right? He's God's anointed. Why is God punishing him with illness that he can't cure? And so I think he's worried about this, that God is punishing him and that here he's asking God to take the plagues away to stop punishing him because he's repenting. The other issue that he's really concerned with has to do with wisdom, So one of the Psalms in the book is asking for divine wisdom. And he marked up, I think, 10 of the 14 annotations are about wisdom. So he's worried that he's not being smart, that he maybe he's making mistakes, that he hasn't been wise. Again, he's worried in the passages that he annotated that his sinfulness has clouded his judgment. And one of the sort of phrases that comes up over and over is he's worried that he's wandered off the path, the right path. So, for example, in one place, he says, Let thy spirit teach me the things that be pleasant unto thee, that I may be led into the straight way, out of error, wherein I have wandered over long. So interesting, right, that he perceives that he's wandered away from the right path. Another place he says, stay and keep my feet from evil ways, lest my steps swerve from thy path. And then the bleakest one, I think of all, is where he says, Lord God, forsake me not, although I have done no good in thy sight. So that's the bleakest one. But then there are other ones that are a little bit more optimistic. Let thy wisdom rule and guide my thoughts, that they may always please thee. So it's clear that he's worried that he has been maybe not made some good decisions. But in some of these annotations, he's hopeful that God will send wisdom, will forgive him so that his sins won't be clouding his judgment and that he will please God. So it's just, again, it's really interesting. If we think of the end of his life, as we know, he knew he was dying. He has an underage son. He must have been really worried about political stability. As you mentioned, there's a 16-member council. So he must have been really worried about the council, how to set up the Regency Council. How should he balance the traditionalist faction with the more reformist faction In the last year of his life, I think 10 Protestants were executed for heresy. So was he worried that he didn't do a good job enforcing conformity? Has he been too lax? Maybe he has been too conservative. It's not clear. Obviously, we don't have any details. But what is clear is that he's worried that he maybe hasn't been a godly and efficient and pleasing king. And he's hoping by marking these passages or by using Parr's book to pray 
for help, that God will help him. Can we turn to think about, as we come towards the end, Catherine Parr as a reader as well as a writer? Because you have pointed out that whereas we've long known about her signature, Catherine Parr the Queen, KP, on a sermon of St. Chrysostom, the Greek church father, that's first translated into English in the 1540s, there's more than just her signature. There's further marginalia, we might call it. There's inscriptions in her own hand. And I'm interested in what her interventions in this text tell us about her. It's fascinating to look at her as a reader, for sure. So, as you mentioned, this is a sermon by Chrysostom. And I think it's important to point out just that, you know, he's a very sort of cutting edge. This new translation only comes out in 1542. John Cheek also dedicates some Latin translations from the Greek to Henry in 1545 and 44. So Chrysostom is new, cutting edge recovery of the Greek fathers. And so I think even just signing the book and then writing beside it, Parr is signaling that she's at the forefront of new, exciting intellectual reading and discussion. But then, as you mentioned, she has excerpted five or six passages from the book of Ecclesiasticus, which was understood to have been written by Solomon at the time. So she's reading intertextually because there's a lot of ways in which the passages that she excerpts resonate with the content of Chrysostom's sermon. You know, it's sort of like people have tags at the end of their email signature sometimes. So she's chosen six passages from Ecclesiasticus and their maxims to live by. Right. So we see her writing out things that she thinks is important. And what she's doing is she's both engaging in ethical self-reflection. So these are the things that are important to me as queen. But because they're very visible on the title page, I think she's also communicating to those around her because people saw other people's marginalia. You know, she's showing people what kind of queen she is. And so we're not maybe super surprised by some of these, but it shows us that she's quite intent on depicting herself as someone who is godly. So one of these is delight not in the multitude of ungodly men. There's something about not caring about riches because they're not going to help you at the last day. So even though she lives in an opulent court and we know that she loves jewelry and she loves fancy clothes and Susan James has itemized all the beautiful things she owned and bought, here she's making it clear that sure, she has that stuff, but she knows that really what matters is piety and that at the end of the day, riches are not going to help her. I love there's one that's about don't walk in every path and watch out for having a double tongue. And then there's another one that's about use no slander. And again, I think this seems relevant to life at court, right? So there's a lot of backstabbing or factionalism at court. And here she's suggesting that she's going to rise above factionalism. She's not going to slander anyone. There's also one about being merciful to people and also being generous and giving to the poor and also listening to the word of God carefully and being very thoughtful and not being a rash to answer. So, yeah, I mean, I think she's creating a little portrait of herself here. What are the kinds of values that she has? And Chrysostom's sermon is often about how the world is basically useless and you just need to suffer. <laughs> the godly people will just need to suffer. But what's interesting here is her passages suggest that maybe she's going to try to reform the court or she doesn't see the worldly realm as completely hopeless. 
and that these are the values that she's going to try to carry forth. And what's super interesting is that Henry, around the same time, made some annotations in a book of Solomon. So the same kind of text. And he annotates very similar passages about riches, about listening to God's word, about not engaging in slander. It's impossible to know who wrote their annotations first, but what it suggests to me is that they've discussed these things, that Parr knows the kinds of things that Henry's annotating, and that there's a kind of a shared belief that engaging with the Bible, annotating biblical passages, excerpting them is part of monarchical reflection, but also self-representation. And I suppose it also suggests that we've got these two people, one who has come to be understood to be quite conservative in faith and one quite evangelical reformist in faith, but actually their practices as believers map on quite closely and overlap. And actually this great distinction that we've built up because of the sort of growing separation between Catholicism and Protestantism over the century actually means that we forget that there is a similarity between them in terms of practice as believers as well. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. Yeah. We tend to gravitate towards those flashpoints where people disagreed because there's a lot to say about them and because it enables us to categorize people But as you point out, there's even during the periods of conflict, still a large body of concepts and practices and commitments that are shared by both reformers and traditionalists. Yeah, for sure. So to finish then, what do you think we should conclude about Catherine's role in the English Reformation and in the projection or delineation of what majesty was in Henry's reign? Well, I mean, I think I just sort of agree with what you said. Like, I think she has played a more significant role than we've understood in the Reformation around a number of different issues. I mean, I think her first book, The Psalms of Prayer, is also very tightly aligned with Cranmer's litany in ways that we didn't have time to get into. But she's an important writer in terms of the Reformation. I think that she's participating in these discussions. And also, like you point out, just in the depiction of what a monarch is and the depiction of majesty, because there have been so much work on that. Kevin Sharp's book and John King's book, like how Henry depicted himself through all these various different, you know, through the break with Rome and then how Edward depicted himself. There's been so much study of every little detail, right? And Parr is part of that. And, you know, it's going to take years, but Hopefully over time, she'll become more integrated into both the history of the court and the depiction of monarchy and also various different specific religious issues. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing to put this woman back where she actually was in the centre, in the heart of this development in religious and political terms and for sharing all your findings with us today. Thank you. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher Esther Arnott, my producer Rob Weinberg, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on 
X, formerly known as Twitter, at NotJustTudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.